there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. How's it going? You know, I want to start today's episode with a little bit of a confession. While I really mean it. I truly want to hear from all of you what fun new coffees you're enjoying. I personally am stuck in a coffee rut. I am so addicted to this new style of coffee that I just discovered a few weeks ago called a Gibraltar. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's something that has equal amounts of espresso with whatever the liquid is. If you like milk, I prefer non-dairy almond milk, but it has the equal amounts of that. And I am reluctant, actually refusing to try anything else. If you like espresso, I recommend that you try it. Please tweet me at time, the number four coffee LLC. Let me know what you think. Either way, grab your favorite caffeinated beverage because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is kind of like my dream seatmate. If I'm on a long haul flight, somebody I know I could talk with for hours and hours and hours and the plane ride would go by like that because he is that interesting. Dr. Steven Schlossman is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the co-director of the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at Massachusetts General Hospital where he practices child and adult psychiatry. He's also a huge fan of horror films and books and has written an amazing book in fact, a number of them, but one in particular called The Zombie Autopsies, Secret Notebooks from the Apocalypse. Not surprisingly, Dr. Shalazman is also known by the nicknames Zombie Doctor and Dr. Zombie. I'm not sure which way he would prefer to be addressed. So I'm just going to go with Dr. Shalazman. Welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinated. I don't know if that means I'm ready to go. I could always use more, but I'm excited to see if I can pull it off. I know you can. I I have to tell you, as I was preparing for this interview and watching some of your wonderful TED Talks and reading some of the articles about you and your own publications, I was kind of struggling internally. I was like, do I go with the science to begin with or do I go for the gore? And of course after a nanosecond of thinking about it, there was no competition. I am going with the gore. I'm all about the sensational. Which (laughs) came first for you? Your love of science and medicine or your love of horror and gore? Uh, I love that question. So I would say gore and horror in general, in part because I I grew up with that genre well before I grew up with any idea of what I want to do with my life. In fact, I sometimes joke with people that, I guess it's half a joke, that I wanted to be a writer since I was eight years old and I wanted to be a physician since I was 26 and my dad kind of made me. (laughs) So I I like both a lot. I really do. But but I had no idea what a physician was uh, when I was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. But I did know what a scary movie was. And I knew that from movies that I watched with my parents' blessings, like the ones on Saturday morning, and then movies that I snuck into, like Down of the Dead, or that I watched when my parents went home, like Salem's Lot. And I really loved those films. And I had this kind of 
sneaky suspicion, even at that young age, that there was something more to them, that they weren't just for the sake of the gore or the horror. In fact, that would be kind of boring. That was what they were about. There was some kind of message that they were better able to convey than were more conventional movies or forms of storytelling or the news for that matter. So I want to get into that in a minute. But just from a completely sort of sensational standpoint, what is it about horror, the genre, that got you hooked? I think it's it's a question I thought about an awful lot because I'm this nice Jewish Midwestern boy. I don't sort of strike myself as the person who would be hooked on horror films. And I like all sorts of different films. But horror in particular, I think it it's actually in some ways a more comfortable reflection of ourselves and all of our imperfections than is any other kind of storytelling. And, and, and I enjoy that. Like I like the idea of somebody telling a story with the very beginning statement, the, the beginning premise that we are by definition flawed. And because of that, the kind of heroics that come with overcoming those flaws are that much more worth Worth celebrating. I mean, I really actually see it as a kind of uplifting genre, even when it doesn't end well. So it isn't the just the fact that you like having the shit scared out of you. No, no, no. I, I do like having the shit scared out of me. And in fact, seriously, you should say that in, in the studies of people who like horror films, and then there's been industry studies as well as some actual non-industry, just people being curious about why folks like it. You actually have to be scared to enjoy it. Uh, at least that's what the data show. If you're not frightened in a horror film, you're very unlikely to like it. Now, the reverse isn't true. If you're frightened, it doesn't mean that you will like it. But the people who come out saying, yeah, that was great, inevitably both acknowledge having been frightened, having the shit scared out of them, and also acknowledge or have measurements that prove that their heart rates went up, their blood pressure went up, all of the signs of a fight or flight response got kicked into gear. So I think I enjoy that experience too. I mean, I, I enjoy roller coaster rides and I plan to go parachuting in the next two weeks, believe it or not. And I think I'll enjoy that so far. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I am not a fan of roller coaster rides. They actually make me feel sick, but <laughs> I love bungee jumping. I've never done that. I'm jealous. Oh, I'm so jealous. It's so cool. And I did it in New Zealand at night. Okay. <laughs> Back to the horror. It isn't mm -hmm. just horror. I mean, you love horror, but it's the zombies that really have you on the hook. Yeah. Yeah. Zombies are pretty special to me. They, uh, well, for a bunch of reasons. The first R movie I snuck into without my parents' permission was Dawn of the Dead. I told them I was going to see the jerk and then had to call them for a ride home because I was too frightened to come home on my own. And um, and and they were I like, what? That. Is Steve Martin a particularly scary guy? It's like, oh, this is Steve Martin. I lied. So that movie really got to me. And it was interesting. Like, it scared me. It scared the hell out of me. But also, it really made me think about these blank slate zombies and how you could have the monster in the movie not be the monster at all. The monster in zombie films are not the zombies because zombies are boring. You can eat a sandwich while you're running away from a zombie. What's fascinating about zombie films is the way humans respond to them. And even at the age of 11 in Dawn of the Dead, I had, I mean, you watch it happen. They get bored in that mall that they're all walled up in. If you haven't seen the movie, they're walled up in a shopping mall and they decide for kicks that they're going to just go blow the heads off zombies. They don't even have to. There is no reason to kill anything, let alone waste their ammunition. So that got me hooked. And then I came back around to it in 2009. Um, I'd been watching zombie films, but the writing started. It's a sad story, but had a happy ending. My wife had 
breast cancer. It was about the best prognosis you could have and still have malignant breast cancer. So it was scary and she's totally fine now. But at the time I couldn't sleep. My kids were younger. So I get them to sleep, got her to sleep. Then I go downstairs and watch whatever was on and Night of Living Dead happened to be on because it's an eminent domain film. So it's always on. And I thought I can't make my wife better, but I can maybe make these zombies better because they're not real. So I sat down at the computer because I couldn't sleep and wrote a fake medical paper about the brains of zombies using what I know about the brain and put it online and it went viral. And from there, a publisher contacted me and said, hey, this would be a cool book. So that awesome. was that was how it came back around. Well, I'm glad to hear, obviously, that your wife is doing well and that this was Thank sort you. of a silver lining yeah. that came out of what could have been a, a really incredibly difficult time for you and your family. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great example of kind of taking something bad and doing your best to make the best of it during the bad time and then having it all turn out to be okay in the end anyhow, which was great. So it obviously, I mean, maybe I'm wrong in this, but it's not a coincidence that you love zombies and zombies eat brains and you happen to be a brain doctor, right? <laughs> um, it is not. The zombie purists, <laughs> and this is an easy thing to talk about because zombies are not real. In fact, the medical school requires me to make that caveat whenever I do an interview. So I'm going to tell you here and now, zombies are not now, nor will they ever be real, the kinds that George Romero first portrayed in Night of the Living Dead. But only one movie has zombies actually eating brains. So it's not necessarily the zombies' hunger for brains because most of the zombie films, even the slow-moving zombies, they just eat people. It's the fact that you can't look at a zombie if you know about the brain and how it works and not start to think out loud about what's wrong with their brains. You can start to actually make empirical diagnoses just by watching the zombie. And from that, you can say, I can at least start to have hypotheses about what parts of their brains aren't working right. Dr. Schlossman, as you know, the audience for Time for Coffee, the Java junkies who are listening are 18 to 25. And yes. one of the many reasons that I wanted to get a chance to talk with you today is that there may be those who are listening who are currently undiagnosed with some kind of mental illness. Mm -hmm. What are the signs that they need to be aware of or the symptoms that they should seek professional help versus, let's say, they're just going through a tough patch. They're feeling depressed or anxious, but it's short-lived, something that isn't a mental illness per se. That is the most important question that, I, that I'm ever asked, and I'm so glad you're asking it. It allows me also to issue the second caveat, which means a lot to me. I would never in a million years think of my patients as zombies. I, I do this sort of medical game of diagnosing zombies, but some folks have thought that that's my way of saying that psychiatric patients are zombie-esque and never in a million years would I think that or say that. And the people who thought that and then have asked me about it, I've talked to them and they've been okay with it. But I wanted to get that out there. The question you're asking is so important because there's not like a discrete beginning of a mental illness. It doesn't work that way with the exceptions of things like a um, your first panic attack or a psychotic break. A psychotic break is the fancy way of saying somebody has the sudden onset of a lack of being in touch with reality. They hear things, see things, think that someone's chasing them when there's actually not somebody there. Those are things that actually no one wonders about. If you've had a panic attack, you know you've had a panic attack. And if you're not sure you've had a panic attack, you probably haven't had one because they really feel awful. It's the middle ground, the sort of slipping towards depression, which you alluded to, that's really difficult to tease out, especially for the age range that you're talking about, in part because that's the age of onset for those syndromes, and also because of the added stressors that come with just being that age. 
So the best thing to do is if you are at all concerned, or even in some ways, more importantly, if your friends or your parents or your professors are at all concerned, you should go talk to someone. You should go to the student health center if you're in college. You should go to your doctor if they're in town. Doesn't have to be a psychiatrist or psychologist. Just got to be somebody who is familiar with enough with these syndromes to say, yes, I'm worried or no, I'm not. You should not worry alone with these things. It's just not worth it. And because we don't have any good tests, we can't get an x-ray and say, yeah, there's depression. It's really, really in your best interest to have somebody think about it out loud with you. One of, again, the many reasons I wanted to interview you is that you've been involved for quite some time in national efforts to increase recruitment into the field of psychiatry and to decrease the stigma with regard to psychiatric illnesses. And I want to share with you and with Java junkies that until recently, I myself was embarrassed that I suffered from depression and anxiety and was on a couple of medications, I have since changed my diet entirely. And I can speak from personal experience that has helped me tremendously with my mood. And I no longer take any medication. There was a time when I remember, I'm sure you have stories like this, Dr. Schlossman, I was sitting in my psychologist's office hoping that no one else would come into the waiting room and see me there. I, I have since come to realize that I'm one of the lucky ones who's able to get professional counseling, and that has also helped me tremendously. And I have to say, on countless occasions over the last 10 years since I've been seeing a psychologist, could you please share with our Java junkies and maybe even their parents who are listening about how they can help themselves get over the embarrassment they may have around acknowledging that they have or may have some kind of mental illness versus the way they would feel talking with their friends about having Crohn's disease or diabetes or some other. Boy, um, yeah, I can tell you what we what has been shown in the research to work. I can tell you what's been shown anecdotally to work. I, I would say one of the most, in fact, the most important thing, both anecdotally and, and in the research is, and I'm not just saying this to be nice, it's to listen to programs like the one you're doing right now. And it's not just because it's me, but it's because of what you just said. We've got mental illness in my family. I've had problems with depression. The willingness to get help and then to let other folks folks know that you're willing to get help actually takes away from the stigma because it creates a personal narrative. It's awfully hard for somebody to stigmatize someone that they don't know or they don't feel they're familiar with. If, you know, when Stephen Fry, who's like a national treasure in Great for the world, but especially in Great Britain, when he acknowledged in the United Kingdom that he had bipolar disorder, it went huge huge distances towards destigmatizing the perception that people in the United Kingdom had with bipolar disorder. And the reason for that is other people then felt comfortable saying, well, you know, I've, I've had problems with this too. It doesn't have to be bipolar disorder, just some psychiatric illness. If you look at the numbers, it's actually, if you combine all psychiatric syndromes together, it's the most likely thing someone's going to suffer from in the early years of their life. So the fact that we feel ashamed of something that actually upwards of one in five are going to experience at some point between the ages of like 18 and 30 is it's a strange phenomena. And it's actually the shameful part actually is that it's worse that stigma in the United States more than any other developed nation. Something about our kind of the mixture of our puritanism and our our kind of sense of independence makes us uncomfortable acknowledging that the self could be sick as opposed to a specific 
specific organ being sick. It just bugs folks. And um, you see this all the time. So being frank and open in settings like this one is super important. And then the final piece is, I'm sorry, this gets me on a high horse. I'll, just, I'll end it here, but it's to, um, you got to advocate. So you write your senators, you write your Congress people, you write the state lawmakers, you write the medical boards. There is no reason on earth that there should be two phone numbers on the back of your health insurance card, one for medical problems and one for psychiatric problems. They are all health problems. So that needs to change. Yeah. Thank you. So from a personally curious about this, what did you think about what I shared with regards to how I changed my diet and my mood, my level of energy, all of that improved dramatically. Do you believe in the connection between the food that we eat and our gut and the microbiome and the effect that it has on our mood? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't think there's any question from, well, there is no question when you look at the data. Not everybody will be fortunate enough to respond by a dietary change by itself. And not everybody's willing to make a dietary change either. That's that's the other piece of it. But if you eat more healthily, there is, and, and we should add to that exercise, which I, again, these sound like kind of self-righteous things to proclaim, but nevertheless, exercise and a more healthy diet has measurable increases in people's moods, including people with depression, maybe even especially for people with depression. One of the most interesting findings is this uh, general slow increase of depression in the United States. It's called the cohort effect. And so even when you control for the you know, possibility that we weren't diagnosing enough and that maybe we're overdiagnosing now, there's still rapid, fairly steady upswing in the diagnosis of depression. And it started around 1968-69, which is pretty much the time when Americans started eating worse. Fast food became more prominent. Frozen food became more prominent. There's nothing wrong with eating every now and then, but if it's all you eat, it becomes problematic. And that is interesting also because it ties in with the fact that people in more challenged socioeconomic circumstances have higher rates of psychiatric illness and they eat more fast food because it's cheaper. It's it's easier to get your belly full and feel um, more satisfied. There's no way it's the only thing that's causing it, but it could be a major causative factor that we haven't really addressed from a public health standpoint, although we're getting back to it now. There's, there's more attention on it. One of the things that I learned recently is that the gut is also known as the second brain Oh, yeah. could, could you talk about that a little bit, what that means and why that is something Java junkies need to be aware of? Sure. In fact, I am sure Java junkies are aware of it. They just don't know to call it that because I'll bet there's at least somebody listening who before a big, you know, fill in the blank, test, date, ball game, whatever, barked in the bathroom. <laughs> like, that's what happened. That's your serotonin syndrome. There's serotonin receptors in the stomach. There's a neuroplexus, which is just a tangle of nerves. It looks identical to the serotonin receptors that in the brain. They get wound up, secrete all sorts of fight or flight neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine. That stirs up your stomach and you throw up. So the gut actually is a pretty, how you're feeling in your gut. When we say we have a gut feeling, it's that phrase doesn't come out of nowhere. It probably comes from a very early recognition that the way you are feeling emotionally often has a kind of corresponding feeling in, in your stomach. So since then, people have talked about the microbiome. So for listeners who don't know what that is, it's the organisms that are happy to live in our gut and make us happy. And then there are other organisms that live in our gut, bacteria, that maybe don't make us so happy. And if we don't have a 
balanced, healthy diet, you can get things out of balance in your gut. It's just like any ecological system. And when things get out of balance in your gut, those neurotransmitters in your gut can't operate appropriately. So, I mean, there's even worked out theories for how this works. Could you elaborate on that? I would love to hear that. Yeah. So, I mean, they're all theories at this point because they're, they're in the testing stage, but different bacteria have different waste products, you know, as they're, whether they're aerobic or anaerobic. And as they secrete their waste products, those waste products either increase or decrease the ability for neurotransmitters to effectively bind to their receptors. Some you would like to bind to the receptors, GABA receptors, for example, because those are calming. Others you would actually not like to bind all the time. Once we've already talked about dopamine, norepinephrine, maybe serotonin to some extent. And then there's things like cortisol. Cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone, not a neurotransmitter, that goes up and that goes up in the presence of a stressed inflammatory state, which often comes from eating food that's not all that healthy, which creates uh, bacteria that then your immune system attacks and gets that inflammatory cascade in process. So you've got sort of three mechanisms that suggest that a healthy diet would improve mood. Now, the one of the ironies, it's worth pointing out, and I'm sure this will strike uh, some listeners as relevant. One of the symptoms of depression, especially depression among teenagers and young adults, is the desire to eat junk food. It's a desire to eat really, uh, yeah, carbohydrate-laden foods. So it's uh, it's called atypical depression, and it's actually a misnomer because it's the more common form of depression. You get leaden paralysis, which means you just want to sleep all the time. Lead, like you're really heavy and you don't feel like moving, and you eat a lot of really bad for you foods. And this is where your question about how do you know when you're sick comes into play because that's the way a lot of teenagers are. So it can't be those things by themselves. But there's something that provides immediate comfort from eating a bag of Doritos that provides downstream poor effects. And what often happens to kids between the ages of 18 and 26 is because they're kind of in an all or nothing way of thinking, they want to just go for it entirely. You know, their first run is a marathon. It's not like a 5K or something. They'll like suddenly cold turkey from the Doritos and that's not good either. It's okay to have a bag of Doritos every now and then, but if it's all you eat, you're going to feel worse. And what about sugar? Sugar is an interesting one. Um, So there's not definitive data to suggest that sugar in and of itself is damaging either to mood or makes people more agitated or hyper. And when I say that, those are studies based on very large numbers. So you you look for a signal, you get a study, a bunch of people who've eaten a ton of sugar, you, they're usually naturalistic studies. So you compare them to people who tend not to eat a lot of sugar and you find that there's not a discernible difference. There's not enough that you can't say could just as easily be caused by chance. But these are large numbers. So what that means is that within those large numbers, there are undoubtedly individuals who are affected by the sugar and just don't, there's not enough of those individuals to create the signal in the large studies. So this is something that people have to learn about themselves. If you are somebody who responds poorly to a lot of sugar or even just, you know, more sugar than other folks, but it's not even a lot, it's worth at least trying to cut down for a couple of weeks and see, see if you feel better. Because the effects, the feeling better actually happens pretty quickly. Dr. Slosman, as I mentioned in the introduction to you, in addition to being a very successful psychiatrist, obviously, you are also a published author having written the book, The Zombie Autopsy, Secret Notebooks from the Apocalypse, which was on the book list, which is compiles book reviews. In this case, it was the top 10 horror books of 2011. Congratulations. Thank you. And you also teach horror in literature and movies to undergrads at Harvard. How, How has your love of horror helped you become a better psychiatrist? And do you think you would enjoy being a psychiatrist as much as you do if you 
didn't have your zombie outlet? <laughs> That's not a really wise question. That's a shrinky question. I like that. So there, there's a very kind of mechanical answer to that, which is my love of horror helps kind of fuel my psychiatry in part because kids nowadays often, I'm a child psychiatrist, kids Google the names of their doctors, they find my name, and then they see pictures of me with vampires and zombies and things like that at places like Comic-Con and horror conventions. So then they say to their parents, yeah, I'll, I'll go see that guy. And the parents, they get a little nervous. But the kid, it's hard enough to get your kid to see a shrink. So if you can get like your 12-year-old to go see someone and you get some other stamp of approval, that gets you in. So from a very mechanical level, it helps. But from an intellectual and emotional level, it helps a lot because stories, they don't have to be horror stories. I happen to like horror stories, but I also love coming of age uh, stories and romantic comedies. Stories actually help us bridge these gaps of disconnection. One person can never be exactly like another person, but you can talk about a story and in the displacement of that story, you can say, how are you like Lenny and Of Mice and Men? You can just sort of pick whatever they happen to be reading. And in my case, it'll often be horror stories when I'm teaching it to the undergraduates. Say, what's it like for you to think about the, the bind that these characters are in? And people without even knowing it, they end up talking about what it's like for them to be in their own binds. That's a much safer and a lot less kind of embarrassing way for people to talk about themselves, especially kids. Uh, kids aren't in a big hurry to right away tell you, you know, here's how I feel about this and blah, blah, blah. But they are very interested in telling you how they felt about the last iteration of whether the current Slender Man movie is any good, which I hear it is not, but I've not seen yet. So I kind of vouch for it. <laughs> so that's, I, I think, I can't imagine stories without psychiatry, psychiatry without stories, and to go on a bit of a limb, I can't imagine medicine without stories, and part of what makes me frustrated about medicine is it's gotten away a little bit from stories, with the possible exception of psychiatry and of other fields of medicine, except even in those fields, everyone's had experience where they've met with doctors who seem less interested in the stories, which mm. is hard for me. Actually, I think that leads me to one of the questions that you suggested that I ask you. Why being a psychiatrist is so rewarding, yet practicing medicine is so frustrating now. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, sure. How much time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll tell you, being a, a psychiatrist is still like when I balance it all out, the rewarding part of being a physician, and especially for me, being a psychiatrist, way outweighs the um, stuff that's frustrating. It's it's a great gig. It's a great way to make a good living. Nobody's growing super rich on it, but that's fine. You don't need to be, everybody can put food on their table and pay for their kids' needs and things that, that matters. And that's really important to me. But on top of that, psychiatry is this fascinating field full of what feel like um, never to be intellectually comfortably answered questions outside of asking further questions. And I like that kind of thinking. If I break my leg, they get an x-ray, they see the fracture and they fix it. It's really straightforward. And there is nothing wrong with that, except I wouldn't enjoy that as much. What I enjoy is thinking with somebody, gee, is this your depression rearing up? Or is this maybe the stressors of this recent breakup? And it's not quite depression, which doesn't mean you can't use my help if you want it, but it's we're not going to sort of elevate it to the level of depression. I love those things. Now, what makes it frustrating is all of those things take time. They take tons of time to do this well 
to do it the way I was trained. So I, I guess there's, it's a little tautologic there because I'm assuming that the way I was trained is the way to do it well. But actually, I think it is. You, you have to actually spend time with your patients and get a story. You have to know what story they're telling you. You have to know the nuances of the story. And you have to understand that the story actually might change on the second, third, or 12th visit and be prepared to kind of roll with that story. What you thought was depression might turn into something else, but they haven't figured out how to tell you that or they didn't even themselves know that until about 12th visit. A lot of the oversight in medicine doesn't allow you to do that kind of exploration. In fact, it actively works against that kind of exploration. And I find that very frustrating. Dr. Schlossman, you also believe that the differences that people in higher education make between the STEM, the science, tech, engineering, and math subjects, and the humanities is nonsense. Why is that? I really do. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It drives me crazy. I, I understand the emphasis on STEM and, you know, technology today is moving at this unbelievably rapid rate. Artificial intelligence is absolutely fascinating and terrifying. If you've ever watched an episode of Black Mirror, you'll know exactly what I mean. I'm sure people listening have. But all of the innovations that we make via the science and the technology, that comes from our ability to appreciate. I really think this, to appreciate wonder, to appreciate poetry. In, in fact, when you look at the brain improvising, say in a jazz ensemble, it's if you look at it under functional MRI, it looks exactly like the brain of a master diagnostician in medicine going in and saying, I know what this disorder is. I know what this disease is. Just from looking at the patient, somebody with some heart condition, just from hearing a little bit of the story, that jump from A to D, as opposed to going A, B, C, D, which is what STEM teaches you appropriately, that comes from this ability to think critically and make inferences via the humanities. And I hate that we would throw away one in favor of the other. I want them together. I want them together for my kids and also just for the future of fun thinking. Dr. Schlons, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community today. I have gotten so much out of listening to you, and I know you are doing wonderful things in your practice and how fortunate your patients are to have a physician like you who hopefully can help them get through some of the tougher parts of their lives. Well, I want to thank you for having me. This is a great, great podcast. I'm delighted to be here, and I look forward to listening to other episodes, too. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.